Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we come together on Wednesdays for meditation. And then on Sundays, we get together in order to discuss one of the chapters in this book. This upcoming Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 24, which is titled Misunderstandings of Gotama Buddha's Teachings. And this is a chapter where now that you've learned throughout the six, seven month program, the various teachings of the Buddha and building that foundation, now we're going to discuss the misunderstandings. But we'll talk about that towards the end of the class. Today is all about meditation. We rotate between breathing mindfulness meditation on one Wednesday and then the other Wednesday we do loving kindness meditation and this is helping you to build up your practice. So we come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our practice by meditating. Whether you're watching this on Zoom or Facebook or YouTube or listening on the podcast on one of the replays, I would like to welcome all of you to our class and invite you to meditate with us. And after we do meditation, I'll open up to any questions that you might have related to the teachings of the Buddha and the path to enlightenment. So if you'd like to join for meditation, typically people start with the seated position because the seated position is really good for learning and for kind of a primary method of meditating. So if you're on the floor, you might be sitting with a cushion under your rear. You might have your legs crossed lightly in front of you. If you're in a chair, you might be sitting with your feet flat on the floor or maybe lightly crossed at the ankles. You're not interested in anything being real tight and real rigid. You would like your legs to just be nice and comfortable. Not uptight and painful, but also not luxurious either in the middle, nice and comfortable. And then your hands and arms, you can put those into your lap as well. Usually what people do is put their right hand on top of their left with their thumbs together. This is the way that the Buddha meditated, but there's other options as well because that may or may not be comfortable for you. You can put your palms on your thighs or on your knees. You can put your palms up. If you're in a chair with armrest, you might just put your arms on the armrest of the chair. Essentially, you'd like your lower body and your hands and arms to be completely relaxed where there's no muscles engaged whatsoever. The upper body, this should be erect. By keeping the upper body erect, this keeps the mind attentive and alert during your meditation because this is a dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're actively training the mind to either eliminate certain unwholesome qualities or you're cultivating certain wholesome qualities. So this is what you're doing as you're meditating. So you would like the upper body to be erect so it keeps the mind attentive and alert 
which gives you access to the mind. Where if your mind was complacent during meditation, you wouldn't be able to train it. Or if it was real uptight, you wouldn't be able to train it. So you'd like the mind to be in the middle. And the way that you do that is keep your upper body erect, which keeps the mind attentive and alert during your meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here at the beginning of your meditation, you're just establishing the breath. Breathing in gradually through the nose, establishing a nice natural breath, experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you get to the full inhale, then next just gradually exhale through the nose experiencing a nice natural exhale here you're not trying to force the breath or control it you would just like to breathe in naturally through the nose and wherever you get to your exhale just breathe out gradually through the nose breathing in in out I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation, and then I'll come back with some more guidance to help us get deeper into meditation. You're welcome to join along in these chants if you know them. Otherwise, you can just hang out here with the breath. Oh 
सखातोरोकावितो अनुतेरोपुरीसा दामासातीसातावा मनुसनं भूतो भागवाती Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Your breath most likely isn't going to match up to the guidance that I'm providing. I'm just here to guide you. This is your practice. So wherever you get to the next inhale, just breathe in naturally through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you get to the exhale, breathe out gradually through the nose, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. With the breath well established, start fixating the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air coming into the nose. Fixating the mind on the breath is training the mind to come into the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in, in, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, whenever you observe that the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. There's no need to judge the thought. There's no need to analyze it or label it. There's no need to try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. 
Continue to focus on the breath. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of observing the breath, keeping the mind fixated on the sound or sensation of air moving into the nose. Wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in.
to slowly make your way out of meditation. As you guys are making your way out of meditation, I thought I would just remind you of a few things. The first thing is, is that when you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, you're never going to get to a point where you've completely eliminated the thoughts. That's not the goal of this meditation. Oftentimes people confuse that thinking that based on the guidance that I'm providing to cut off and let go of thoughts, they sometimes think that the goal is to eliminate thoughts or they think that they're bad at meditation if they're having thoughts while they're meditating. But in reality, even as the mind is close to enlightenment and actually enlightened, you're still going to experience thoughts, but they're going to be less and less frequent. You're going to notice them a lot sooner and you're going to be able to easily let them go and come back to the breath. Where when you first start meditating and as you're building up your practice, there might just be a bombardment of thoughts. 
And if you're noticing that the mind is having a lot of thoughts, this is great. You're observing the mind. This is awareness of mind or mindfulness. So when you're aware that the mind is having these thoughts, that's when you'd like to then train the mind to cut them off and let them go. So what you're training in meditation is you're training to have awareness of mind or mindfulness. You're training to have concentration or focus where you're actually able to focus on a single object like the breath. And you're training the mind to more and more easily be able to let go of the thoughts and come back to the breath. Let go, come back, let go, come back. Because what's going on in the unenlightened mind and why it's experiencing discontentedness is that it's holding on. It's having craving, desire, attachment. It's craving permanence. It wants to hold on to things. So if 30 times or 50 times or 100 times during your one meditation session, if you're training the mind to let go, let go, let go, let go, come back to the breath, come back to the breath, come back to the breath. That's actually really good because then in daily life, when you're aware of anger arising, for example, then you can easily let that go and come back. But if you weren't training this way in meditation, you wouldn't be able to do that. So even as you get closer to enlightenment and the mind's actually enlightened, you're going to have an occasional thought. There's just going to be more and more space between the thoughts. What the Buddha talks about in his teachings about meditation is he talks about quieting the mind or stilling the mind. So if your mind has got a lot of thoughts and it's being bombarded by thoughts, that's normal. That's part of what somebody experiences as they first get going and maybe for the first couple of years even, you might notice this. But over time, there'll be these longer and longer gaps between your thoughts. You'll be aware of them more and more readily and you'll be able to let them go. So this is what you're training to do is develop awareness of mind, concentration or focus on a single object, singleness of mind, and you're training the mind to easily let go. This is training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The other thing that I thought I would share about these teachings and about the path to enlightenment, and it is connected to meditation as well. As you're training your mind in meditation and all the other teachings on the path, be it right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, as you're bringing your practice up closer and closer to the ideal of the Eightfold Path, you're going to be clearing out more and more pollution of the mind. There's more craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that's going to be getting cleared out of the mind. And as a result of this, you're going to notice that the mind is becoming more clear, more concentrated, more focused, getting more clarity of mind, a deeper memory. You're going to notice that discontentedness is gradually diminishing, where things that once caused anger in the mind, now there was maybe just a slight annoyance or an irritation or something like that. And as part of that, what you're going to notice is that your sleep might start bouncing around. You're not going to be able to sleep in one set standard schedule because A sleep schedule is not permanent. It's going to be bouncing around. And where in the past you might have gotten eight hours of sleep or 10 hours of sleep or even longer sometimes because the mind was more polluted, what you're going to notice is you need less and less sleep. You might even only sleep two hours a day or four hours a day. And you wake up and you just feel completely refreshed because carrying around pollution of the mind 
it's a real burden to the mind. It'll bog you down. It'll get you to the point where, yeah, you need eight, 10, 12. There was even one time in my life where I was sleeping 16 hours. Even one point in my life, I was even sleeping 23 hours in a day. That's how polluted the mind was. So as you lift this pollution, as you clear this pollution out of the mind, you might notice that you need less and less sleep. And sometimes people right away think that this is a mental illness, that it's insomnia, or it's my bipolar, my manic phase that's arising or something like this. But what you would like to pay attention to is pay attention to the stability of the mind, the steadiness of the mind, the calmness of the mind, and notice that when you maybe had manic episodes or you had insomnia in the past, your mind was constantly racing and you had all kinds of racing thoughts in the mind and you were lacking sleep. Now, even though you're sleeping less, your mind is stable, it's steady, it's calm. This is really helpful. And you can start building your confidence that you're not needing necessarily eight hours of sleep. If you need eight hours of sleep, then sleep for eight hours. If you need six hours, sleep six hours. But if you notice that your sleep is bouncing around, or if you notice that you're sleeping less and less, like maybe two hours or four hours, that's not necessarily a problem. What we've been taught in the past is that if we don't sleep six to eight hours, that's a problem. And this is because people's minds are craving permanence, thinking that everyone in the world is supposed to sleep six to eight hours a day. But this isn't true. This is the mind craving permanence. So if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you understand that people are gonna sleep different times. Like for example, today I think I slept for an hour and a half, two hours. That's all I've slept. And the mind is completely stable, it's steady, it's calm, it's peaceful, it's joyful, it's focused, it's concentrated. There's no elevated, excited, there's no depression or anything like that or sadness or despair. So you'll notice that this is occurring for you. And the Buddha actually talks about it in his teachings. He talks about how you need to eliminate the craving for the pleasure of sleep. Because let's admit, yeah, when you sleep, you know, there's a certain amount of pleasure in sleeping that you can sleep and you can, you know, be relaxed and you can wake up and you can feel refreshed. But also if you're craving sleep and you find pleasure in sleep, then when you don't get a certain number of hours of sleep, you might wake up grumpy or irritable. This is why the mind is grumpy and irritable because it's craving a certain amount of sleep. So what you would like to do is get to a point where you understand that your sleep schedule isn't going to be exactly the same every day. You're not going to fall asleep at the same time and wake up at the same time. You're not going to get exactly the same number of hours of sleep that this is going to bounce around. And the sleeping isn't necessarily what you need to pay attention to. What you need to pay attention to is the mind the stability of the mind, the stableness of the mind, the calmness of the mind. And as long as you're seeing that in the mind, then whether you sleep two hours, or you sleep eight hours, or you sleep 12 hours, or you sleep six hours or four hours, that actually doesn't really matter as much. As long as you're sleeping and you're getting some amount of sleep, but you notice that the mind is stable and steady and calm, and that's what you really would like to pay attention to. So I just thought I would share that with you because some of you guys have been studying with me for two years, three years, 
or maybe longer, and you might notice that your sleep is starting to bounce around or you're noticing that you're getting less sleep than you did in the past, you just need to not crave eight hours of sleep every day and just realize that, yeah, you know, I can function on four hours and that's fine too. And the mind's stable, it's steady. I can practice right intention, right speech, right action. I can practice all that stuff. And then other days, maybe I get eight hours of sleep and that's what I get. You know, you would like to create time where your body and your mind can sleep for a important amount of time that it might need, but don't crave a specific amount of time. Because if you wake up after two hours or four hours, when you are craving eight, you might feel like there's a problem. The problem isn't that we slept for four hours, for example. The problem is that the mind's craving eight. That's what the real problem is. So just keep that in mind. Look at the stability, the steadiness of the mind, and that you have awareness of mind, and that you're able to practice things like right intention, right speech, and right action. So I'll just turn things over to you guys for any questions that you might have. You can put this into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that. Or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, Tony has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question. Thank you, Miranda. Yes, teacher David. I'm just wondering, uh, could you explain the difference between concentration meditation and uh, mindfulness meditation for me, please? Thank you, sir. Sure. So breathing mindfulness meditation is the meditation that the Buddha taught. And this is the primary form of meditation that you would practice in order to get to enlightenment, along with all the other teachings as well. And the other meditation is loving kindness meditation. For what you're describing of concentration meditation, it's actually concentration is a quality of mind that you're cultivating while you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So it's not a separate meditation. It's just a quality of mind that you're cultivating as part of breathing mindfulness meditation. So a meditation session, the way I define it, is it's a dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're either eliminating unwholesome qualities of the mind or you're cultivating wholesome qualities in the mind. With breathing mindfulness meditation, you're cultivating mindfulness, which is awareness of mind, and more specifically, the four foundations of mindfulness, and you're cultivating concentration or singleness of mind, being able to focus on a single object. Those are the two wholesome qualities that you're cultivating in meditation using breathing mindfulness meditation mindfulness and concentration. And then the unwholesome quality that you're eliminating in this meditation is craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of your affection, wanting things to be a certain way. So when the mind's moving off the breath, this is the mind not being content in the present moment, potentially. And what you would like to do is when you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. So you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, cultivating mindfulness and concentration. And that's all part of breathing mindfulness meditation. The instructions are just to focus on the breath. When the mind's off the breath, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. That's the instructions of what you're doing. But what you're actually cultivating is mindfulness and concentration, and you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. Hey, thank you, sir. In the Eightfold Path, there's con is a not concentration meditation and, and mindfulness meditation. So is there a difference in, in that part too, sir? 
what you're thinking there is in the Eightfold Path, there's those three steps that are part of the mental discipline, which are steps six, seven, and eight, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. What the Buddha describes as right concentration is he's actually describing the results of putting together your entire path to enlightenment, the Eightfold Path. If you're practicing right view, all the way through to right concentration. What he's explaining in right concentration is the jhanas. And these are the results or the byproducts of practicing all the steps in the Eightfold Path. But remember that Eightfold Path, it's a core central teaching with other teachings plugging into it. So when you look at his other teachings around concentration and what he's actually teaching is he's teaching to practice breathing mindfulness meditation as part of right concentration and he's teaching to practice singleness of mind this is where if you're watching tv you're just watching tv or if you're eating you're just eating or if you're having a conversation you're just having a conversation or if you're checking your email you're just checking your email rather than trying to have a YouTube video in the background playing while you're checking your email, while you're eating a sandwich. This is trying to do two, three, four things at a time and the mind has to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing. It's not practicing singleness of mind. So the practice of right concentration is practicing singleness of mind and using breathing mindfulness meditation to help you to be able to do that in meditation so then you can do it outside of meditation. But what he describes in the Eightfold Path is he's describing the jhanas, which is the results of putting together all the other steps. And then what right mindfulness is, is this is awareness of mind, having the awareness of the mind, which you're cultivating in breathing mindfulness meditation, but you're also practicing it in daily life where you're just aware of the mind and what's going on in the mind. So that then when you see anger or frustration or irritation or even pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation arising, you can be aware of that sooner and sooner and cut it off. The cutting off part, that's the right effort. So these steps that the Buddhist teaching is part of mental discipline is what you're doing in meditation is actually practicing right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration in meditation because you're arising the concentration, you're arising the mindfulness, and you're applying right effort to cut off and let go anytime the mind moves off the breath. But then those same qualities and those same steps you're practicing in daily life, that you're practicing concentration and focusing on a single object when you're actually in daily life. And you're using right mindfulness or awareness of mind so that you're always aware of the mind throughout your daily life. And then wherever you see in daily life that there's unwholesome thoughts arise or unwholesome qualities arise, you cut those off and let them go. In meditation, we're cutting off and letting go all thoughts. Anything that arises, we're cutting off and letting go in meditation. But outside of meditation, you're only cutting off the unwholesomeness. So if you're sitting in your chair in your living room and a wholesome thought's like, you know, I think I might take my wife out for dinner tonight. I'd like to invite her to go out to dinner. You don't have to cut that off. You can go and say, hey, honey, you know, I was thinking there's this new restaurant that opened up around the corner and I'd like to take you out for dinner. Are you interested? 
right? So you can pursue those wholesome things. But if you had any unwholesomeness arise where you would like to argue or you'd like to have killing or stealing or sexual misconduct or lying or take substances that cause heedlessness, where those unwholesome things arise, that's what you're cutting off and letting go, applying right effort. But you need right mindfulness, awareness of mind to be able to apply right effort. And by you practicing right concentration, where you're just focusing on a single object, then you can more exactly identify what's going on in the mind. When the mind is bombarded with a bunch of thoughts, it gets very cloudy and it gets very difficult to discern what are the individual cravings that are going on in the mind and why is the mind experiencing what it's experiencing. And it's also very difficult when the mind's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to be able to practice something like right speech, for example or listen to people and comprehend things. So when you're doing just one thing at a time, then you can just bring your full practice of the entire Eightfold Path, which includes right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and all the others. You can just apply it to that one task. Do it really well, not make any errors, any mistakes, cause any unwholesome gamma through unwise decisions, you can just bring all your wisdom to bear on that one task or that one activity, and then you're done and you move on to the next thing. Where what we do when we're not practicing these teachings is we're trying to do more than one thing at a time. We're not fully bringing all our wisdom to one particular task. We're splitting our mind into many different things, or we're trying to do many different things, and then we're not doing each thing really well and we start making unwise decisions. And then we keep moving on in our day and we're leaving behind us like knocked over a whole bunch of trees. It's like going through the forest, knocking down a whole bunch of trees. And now we have to circle around and clean things up because we've been making unwise decisions. Whereas if we just practice right concentration of singleness of mind, which we've cultivated in meditation, and we practice that singleness of mind in daily life, now we can just bring all of our wisdom to that one task, do it really well, and then move on. And there's nothing to circle back around and clean up later. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. I see Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, sir. Uh, my question is, goes back to the sleeping thing you were you were talking about earlier, uh, Teacher David. I myself, and this is just sort of a confession, I recently got into a relationship, and um, I'm experiencing all the obsessions and craving that goes with with that. You know, I feel like a teenager in many respects. And for the last three weeks, I haven't been able to sleep until about four days ago. I'm finally starting to get back into my routine but I, I and it was affecting my concentration it was affecting my job performance I actually had to cancel a couple of clients just because I wasn't getting enough sleep I was wondering if um, there are some things I can do when that is occurring in the middle of the night I mean I was up at three or four in the morning and I just could not get to sleep and as opposed to being a householder who spent most of the time you know practicing meditation I do have a job I do have to get up in the morning and to be able to function so I was just wondering if you had any um, any feedback you could offer yeah I'll answer that question but let me clarify some things that I was sharing earlier so this diminishing of sleep or less sleep that occurs as the mind is awakening because of less pollution that's a hundred percent true that's what I was sharing before 
But there's also the situation like what you're experiencing, Rick, where when craving arises in the mind, there can be this almost obsession, right? That's another way to describe craving, that the mind is obsessed with whatever it's chasing after. This is why it chases the objects of its affection because it has this obsession and it's chasing, 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 chasing. And because the mind is running after this thing, in your case, you know, a relationship and things like that, there's nothing wrong with having a relationship. It's just that when there's craving for it, then there's almost like this obsession. And that can hinder us from sleeping when we really should be sleeping and we need to be sleeping. What I was talking about before is more about just the lessening of a need for sleep because the mind is less polluted. Now what we're going to be talking about is how the mind goes up into craving, which then hinders it from sleeping and getting the real sleep that it needs. And now we feel groggy and we feel tired and we feel somewhat miserable because this craving has persisted in the mind that it's hindering us to sleep. So what you do in this situation is when the mind's craving like that, the best thing to do is to meditate, is do breathing mindfulness meditation. The Buddha talks about this and you can observe it for yourself is that breathing mindfulness meditation can eliminate evil unwholesome states on the spot. This is what the Buddha explains. Now, when you first start meditating, it's not going to necessarily do that because the mind has got so many cravings. It's like trying to break through a brick wall. But as you accumulate more and more benefits of your breathing mindfulness meditation, you can use it in situations like that where the mind is craving to then knock that craving down, right? It's almost like taking a water hose and knocking it down, knocking the fire of craving down. So you can be meditating and whether you do that in the lying position while you're trying to sleep in the bed or whether you go somewhere else in your house, that can be really helpful. The other thing is, is that you're not interested in staying in the bed and just allowing the mind to be obsessed and just constantly rumiating. If you're laying in bed trying to fall asleep 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you're not able to fall asleep, get up and go somewhere else. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're training the mind while you're laying in bed to sit there and overanalyze the situation. It's better to get up, go to your living room, have a a sip of water or soy milk or whatever it is, have a little snack if you'd like to, or do whatever it is, read a book for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, watch a little TV, whatever it is that you would like to do to try to redirect the mind. Because when there's craving in the mind and it's hindering sleep, it's just sitting there obsessively ruminating over this thought. And what you would like to do is you'd like to redirect the mind in order to knock down the craving. And breathing mindfulness meditation can do that, but also reading a book for 5, 10, 15 minutes can do that as well. Or watching a little bit of TV can do that, right? So you'd like to redirect the mind away from this craving to train the mind to let it go because it's holding on to these thoughts and it's just like, oh my goodness, she's such a great woman or he's such a great guy. I can't believe I met this person. Wow, I feel so great being with them. Wow, this is the relationship. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the person. Oh my goodness. And this is just the mind obsessing and craving. And ultimately, if we allow that craving to persist, it sabotages our relationship because now when we're with this person, we smother them rather than just allowing the relationship to grow naturally. So you'd like to 
take a healthy approach to the relationship is where you see the mind craving and being obsessive about the relationship is redirect it and train the mind to let it go and realize that, okay, this is a good person. This seems like this relationship's going to be wonderful, but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's pull the mind back. Let's restrain it. Let's redirect it to something else. And then this will help you to potentially sleep. And then the third thing is by being attentive to the mind all throughout your day, this is going to help you to sleep. If you're allowing the mind to run away in craving throughout your day, then this is going to make it harder for you to sleep. So if you're meditating morning, midday, and evening, or even morning and evening, you know, you get two or three meditation sessions a day for 30 minutes or more. This is keeping the mind's craving at bay. It's kind of like knocking the fire down and keeping it low throughout your day. So rather than not meditating and then you get to the end of the day and it's like, oh my goodness, I've got all this craving that I'm sitting here with. The mind is like overloaded with craving. Instead, you would like to knock that down a few times throughout the day and keep it at bay so that by the time it's time for you to actually go to sleep, that the craving has already been knocked down, that you've already been kind of maintaining the mind, making these tweaks along your day so that you're not allowing the mind to chase after things. So if you're driving down the road and you're on the way to the store and you're thinking about this relationship and how wonderful it is, how great it is, sure, you've met a new person that you would like to have a great relationship with. But right now you're supposed to be focusing on driving. So cut that off, let it go. Let that thought go and just focus on the driving. Whereas if you allow the mind to be complacent and you allow the mind to obsess about this relationship while you're driving or you're walking down the street or you're meeting with clients and you're having conversations with them about their life, but you're thinking about things that are going on in your life, this is not being attentive to the mind and maintaining it throughout the day. So if you're able to maintain the mind throughout the day when it's time for sleep, the mind will be more likely to be ready for sleep because you've been maintaining the mind throughout your day. And these are a few suggestions. There's other things as well that will help you to sleep, but while the mind's craving, this is what you would like to do to redirect it and knock it down and maintain it throughout your day. Thank you, Teacher Dave. You're welcome. And congratulations on meeting a new person in your life. Like there are no questions on Facebook at this time. Yes, thank you, Rick. Um, sir, what should a practitioner do about sensations attributed to the jhanas during meditation? Really focusing on first and second jhanas that are filled with excitement and joy. It was found when meditating this excitement that's spoken of with jhanas, it can be very distracting and can actually cause a bit of a challenge with meditation. This is part of your training. So where you observe that the mind is getting this excitement, particularly as it's entering into the jhanas, this is your opportunity to observe the bodily sensations associated with that and cut it off and bring the mind back. So this is part of your training in meditation and outside of meditation. As you're noticing more and more of the qualities of enlightenment starting to come into the mind, like peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy, 
there can be this excitement that arises like oh my goodness these teachings are working wow like look how peaceful the mind's becoming and you can get excited because the mind is so peaceful right? <laughs> and this is where you need to observe those pleasant feelings that it's still a conditioned feeling. The mind is getting this conditioned excitement because it's peaceful. And then when it's not peaceful, now the mind is angry or frustrated or irritated. So this is part of the practice is that as the mind's kind of coming into this enlightened mental state where you're starting to see more and more of these qualities of enlightenment starting to shine through is you've got to restrain the mind and not allow it to experience that excitement and that thrill, that euphoria associated with, oh my goodness, the mind, I'm able to do it. Wow, look, it's getting to enlightenment. Oh my goodness, it's just like the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. He said I was going to get excited and I was going to have this thrill you know when i get into the jhanas and there it is oh my goodness like his teachings are true he actually lived he's a real being you know there's all these things that can go through the mind so same thing that's that craving and this is your opportunity to restrain the mind and pull it back and if you're doing the work in meditation that's going to help you and then also doing it outside of meditation too and while we're talking about it even though you didn't mention this miranda one of the other things that can happen as the mind starts coming into the qualities of enlightenment is there can be this conceit that arises. This is why it's a higher fetter, is that as you're starting to eliminate all the other fetters and you're starting to observe the jhanas and various qualities of enlightenment start shining through in the mind, there can almost be this arrogance or this pride or this conceit or this judging others and looking down on others because they're not maybe practicing these teachings. So you didn't mention that, and I don't know that this is true, but I'll just share this for anybody who's listening and might be experiencing this is be observant of not only the excitement that arises as these qualities of enlightenment come through, but be observant of the conceit and the arrogance and the pride and the measuring and comparing and the judging, because that stuff needs to be eliminated as well. And the more that you cut out those things, not only the conditioned pleasant feelings, but you cut out the conceit, the more peaceful the mind will become, the more joyful the mind will become. If we allow the mind to be complacent and indulge in that arrogance and pride, then you're actually hindering yourself and the mind isn't able to come into the qualities of enlightenment because it's still got this conceit. So where you see that arising, if at all, be sure that you be attentive to that and cut that off and let it go as well. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And then also, this really doesn't have to do so much with meditation. How, how would your guidance, or what would your guidance be to best explain practicing singleness of mind when others become discontent when they're observing us not multitasking and they have their own expectation that we should be multitasking. I'm very fortunate here in Thailand that people understand multitasking is not a thing, that it's not even possible for the mind to do. There's not this pressure from people to multitask. So I'm very fortunate in that respect. But if I was, say, in a work environment and my boss was expecting me to be doing five, six, eight, ten things at a time, 
I would need to sit down with that boss and help them understand that that's not going to be wise. It's not going to produce beneficial results because as long as they're lacking the wisdom and they keep putting pressure on me to multitask, there ain't no way that I'm going to allow my mind to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing. And as long as I'm not doing that and they have a craving for me to do it, then they're going to be discontent. So I'm going to need to sit down and educate that boss and help them see this over probably multiple conversations. And ultimately, if they're unwilling to see it, I'm probably going to have to find a new job because it's not possible for me to continue to work in an environment where someone's putting pressure on me to multitask. And I know that this is not the way that the mind's going to function in a peaceful and joyful way. So in that situation, I would suggest educating your boss. If it's a coworker or somebody like this, you can even let them know, you know, things like that too. You can just say, you know, I, I just choose to focus on one thing at a time because I realize I get better results that way. Sometimes the way that we educate people is just these little three second, five second sound bites, and we just say it and we move on. It doesn't have to be a two-hour discourse to explain to them singleness of mind, for example. Sometimes we just kind of drop these little things and we just move on. And over time, this person gradually realizes Miranda doesn't do rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing. She does one thing at a time. And because of that, she's able to accomplish a lot in her day and she doesn't really make many mistakes and this is beneficial for her, our customers, our stakeholders, and everything like this. And people come to appreciate it. But initially, you guys are probably functioning in environments where people aren't used to you guys functioning the way you function. Like people aren't used to someone being kind. Someone isn't used to you not having an intention of extracting money out of them maybe maybe if people are used to having people that are wanting things from them or people are angry or having ill intentions if people are used to this when you're around them and you're kind and you're friendly and you're polite and you're respectful they might be suspicious like why is this person doing this what does she want from me and you might have to educate them and help them see over a consistent long period of time that you don't want anything from them and the same thing as it relates to practicing singleness of mind or mindfulness or gossip. You know, you might have people in the work environment coming to you and gossiping about things. And slowly but surely, you will just have to let people know that, you know, that that's not what you do. And sometimes you can let them know that by just choosing not to engage in gossip and walking away and saying nothing. Maybe that's a good way to do it. Other times you might have to just say, you know, Barbara, I think it would be better if we didn't talk about Susie in this way and we talk about something else. Sometimes if you say something like that, you know it's going to arise anger in their mind and maybe it's not wise to do that. And this is where the Buddha doesn't give us just one set way of practice where he says, if someone's gossiping, say this, right? Or if somebody is putting pressure on you to multitask, do this right? Because there's always like three, four, five, eight, ten, twenty 10, 20 different right answers in any given situation. And this is where the practice comes in, where you understand the person who's attempting to pressure you to multitask or their mind's getting discontent because you're not multitasking. 
you know that they're getting discontent because of their own craving. And the only way for them to let that go is to get to wisdom. They need to understand why you do what it is that you do. And you can even do that rather than maybe just overtly telling somebody where you see somebody becoming discontent that you're not multitasking. You can say, you know, Robert, are you interested in understanding why I don't multitask? And they're like, yeah, I'm actually interested. Why don't you do that? Oh, here's the reason why, right? Sometimes what we do is we kind of rush in and try to tell somebody something about ourselves where sometimes it's better to ask an open-ended question and ask if they're interested first. And then when they say, yes, I'm interested to know why you don't multitask. Okay, let me help you understand. Because now you know that the person's mind is open and willing to understand. Whereas if we just broadcast information to somebody, we don't necessarily know that they're being receptive to what it is that we're sharing. So oftentimes what I tend to do is I tend to ask somebody a question first to see if they're open to understanding. And if they're open to understanding, I'll share with them. I'll take my time, effort, energy, and resources to do that. But if they're not interested and they're like, no, I don't care why you don't multitask, then it's like, all right, I understand. See you later. Have a wonderful day or, you know, whatever else you're going to do. Because we're not interested in wasting our time to talk with somebody who's not interested in understanding. So oftentimes asking a question first will give you an indication of whether they're truly interested to understand why it is you do the things that you do, because you're going to be functioning very differently than the average person in the environment that you're in. And they're not going to understand why, right? Like you can be in situations where everybody's crying and angry and upset and you're just smiling and peaceful and they're looking at you like what is wrong with you like this person just died how can you smile and be joyful don't you love her don't you care and they just don't understand so part of what we can sometimes do is educate others but be sure we ask a question first that they're open-minded and interested in that education before we apply the time, effort, energy, and resources to share it. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Uh, On Zoom, Kayla has a question. Uh, She asks, what is the best way to support a spouse who is experiencing strong emotions regarding the loss of a family member? My wife is not involved in the teachings and lost her nephew and has a lot of discontentedness. I want to be there for her and support her through this, but I am unsure of how or what exactly to say in the moments where she is super upset. Sure. So the first thing to understand is that when someone's experiencing discontentedness, there's really nothing you can do to solve that because it's their craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontentedness. Only they can eliminate their craving, desire, attachment and get to contentedness and peacefulness. So you can't solve her discontentedness. And this is where oftentimes our own attachment to an individual, we want to rush in and solve their problems. So recognizing upfront that you can't solve her problems and you can't solve her discontentedness, that she's got to be able to do that for herself. So that's an important thing to have upfront. The next thing is, as she's sharing whatever she's sharing, oftentimes just listening is what a person needs is just to listen and just don't necessarily offer any advice or any thoughts but just listen and then when you're listening they have that ability to get it all out of the mind because their mind might be bombarded with thoughts 
And the way for them to get it out is just to talk and have somebody listen. So just listen. As you're listening and it seems like they're done with whatever it is they're going to talk about, if you feel like you have something to share with them, you can do the same thing that I just shared with Miranda, which is ask questions. You can say, are you interested in my thoughts? Are you interested in my advice? Are you interested in my suggestions? Or would you like to know how I would deal with that situation? Because oftentimes what we'd like to do is just rush right in, give a bunch of advice, and then that's not what the person is really interested in. So prefacing anything that we might share with, are you interested in this? Then when they say yes, then you know there's an open door. Otherwise, it might just be listening. It might just be, I understand. I understand why you're upset. I understand why you're sad. If you need anything, I'm here for you. Would you like me to go to the store and get you some food? You know, is there something you need? You know, you can just do those kinds of things, but not with craving, like obsessively asking them, but just occasionally, you know, check in on them. But also, allow the person to come to the close of that craving themselves. Sometimes we might constantly ask the person, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Are you still sad? You know, are you still thinking about that person? And that kind of arises the thought in their mind. But just be there for them. Listen. I understand. Do you need anything? Is there something I can do to help you? You know, would you like me to just listen in this situation? Are you interested in hearing my advice? These kinds of things can be really helpful, but recognizing that there's nothing you can do to eliminate her discontentedness is a really important thing so that your attachment isn't flaring up where you feel like you need to rush in and do anything particular. There's nothing in particular that you need to do other than just be present and listen, understand, and help wherever that person's saying that they need help. And The other thing I was going to share about this, this might not be the right time for your wife, but in some future situation it might be, is oftentimes when somebody encounters a situation where they're deeply experiencing discontentedness, this can be a time where they're more likely to pick up the teachings and actually learn and practice them. Even though right now she's not learning and practicing and that's her choice, Sometimes when somebody's deep into grief or despair, displeasure, this can be a time that actually they decide to pick up the teachings and start learning. So as part of your advice, you might suggest that and help them understand that that's what's going to ultimately solve their discontentedness. Another kind of skillful thing that you can do, I don't know if you've done these kind of things, is... Sometimes what I used to do is like when I would teach these classes, of course, my wife and my son are sleeping. They're not listening to the classes and learning what I'm teaching. But during the daytime when I'm editing the podcast, they might be downstairs in the living room just eating in the kitchen or watching TV or something or just sitting there, you know, talking or whatever. And I might be in the corner or on the sofa editing the podcast and they're hearing it. They're hearing the podcast. They're hearing the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and these other teachings that are helping them. So sometimes what spouses do is go into the same room as your spouse. You know that she's having trouble with craving, desire, attachment. She doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths and right view and go in and like turn on the podcast for the Four Noble Truths. 
and just have it enough that you can hear it and maybe she can hear it too. And maybe it's just in the background and maybe she's not listening attentively. Maybe she's not actively listening, but she's picking up a couple of words here and there. And this can be a way to kind of ease the teachings into somebody's life without craving desire attachment. You're just kind of on your own listening to a podcast on the Four Noble Truths. And it just so happens that she's in the same room hearing a little bit of it as well. And this can be a way that she might hear a few words or a few teachings that can help her. And you don't know in a time like this where there's a lot of grief or a lot of despair that she might decide to pick up the teachings more actively. That's what she would need to do in order to completely eliminate the discontentedness. But there's ways that we can kind of open the door for them. They have to walk through, but we can kind of open the door by having a book around, by having a podcast on, by, hey, would you be interested to understand why your mind's experiencing grief based on your nephew dying? And then if they say yes, okay, that's them being willing to walk through the door or at least look at the door. So be aware that during these times of grief, this might be a time that someone's more open to the teachings where in the past maybe they weren't. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for class today. It's really wonderful to come together and meditate to encourage, support, and motivate each other. I appreciate all the questions that you guys have because this is helping you guys and it's helping other people too. There's hundreds, hundreds, and even thousands of people who hear our podcast and watch our YouTube videos that watch our videos and Facebook and so forth. So even when there's only six, eight, ten people in class, there's hundreds and thousands of people that are learning these teachings. So your questions are helping you it's helping a lot of other people as well. So thank you for your questions and thank you to the moderators for your time and effort and energy to moderate the classes and support people to be able to ask questions. And that allows me to just do one thing at a time, which is teach. I don't need to look at YouTube. I don't need to look at Facebook. I don't need to look at Zoom. I can just focus on teaching. And I think it works out to be a much better class for all of you guys. So thank you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing and sharing the teachings through even moderating and being able to allow our classes to be conducted in this way. Next week on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together as a group. And then on Sunday, we're going to be doing chapter 24, which is misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. This is where I'm going to share with you the things that you're going to see in some environments related to the Buddhist teachings. Because remember, he taught 2,500 years ago and the teachings were shining brightly during his lifetime. And for 500 years afterwards, the teachings were really brightly shining in the world because he had just taught and he had just died. So enlightened beings were more prevalent in the world. So the teachings were very much shining in the world. But since that time, the teachings have been deteriorating all the way up until now, 2,500 years later. So even though in this group learning program, you've been learning with me all the teachings through the various chapters and online classes and questions and things that I've been sharing with you, you've been learning through the words of the Buddha of what are the true teachings. But when you go into various communities and various temples and various Facebook groups, when you pick up certain books, people are going to be sharing things that aren't based in 
the actual words of the Buddha and what the Buddha actually taught. And these are just misunderstandings. These people aren't necessarily doing anything malicious or with ill intent. It's just that they're lacking the wisdom because while we study with the words of the Buddha, the vast majority of the world does not. The teachings of the Buddha are essentially have been hidden, not intentionally, but just they've been very buried in places like Thailand. And they've been in the Thai language. And unless you understand the Thai language over the last several decades, people haven't really gotten access to the teachings. So the teachings have gradually diminished and deteriorated. And now what we're doing is bringing them back into the world in a way that they can be restored and wider and wider audiences of people can learn and practice these teachings. But when you go into environments, whether it's a meditation center, a retreat, a temple, a Facebook group, you pick up books, you talk with somebody at a local smoothie shop or something like this, people have all these different perspectives about what the Buddhist teachings are. And more than likely, they're going to be very different than what I've explained to you in this group learning program and in the resources that I share. So I'm going to share with you some of the common misunderstandings of the Buddhist teachings on Sunday. And what this does is this helps you to see the path more clearly. The more clear that you know what the path to enlightenment is, the more likely you're able to actually attain enlightenment. Where if the path was dirty and murky and diluted, it would be very difficult for you to be able to get to enlightenment if you thought things like rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship actually lead to enlightenment. So I'm going to be sharing with you some of these common misunderstandings that you're going to see not only in these meditation centers and temples, but you're going to actually see ordained practitioners who are practicing certain things. And what some people are led to believe is that, oh, they're ordained, they're a monk, they're wearing a robe, so they must know the Buddhist teachings. So whatever they're doing, that's the Buddhist teachings. But what you're going to see is some of these misunderstandings are actually within the ordained community. So if you understand this, then when you interact with this person, you're not going to judge them, you're not going to look down on them, but you'll just understand that it's due to impermanence, it's due to a lack of access to the words of the Buddha, and now that you have access to these teachings, it's important to see these misunderstandings so that then the path becomes more and more clear for you. And that's what I'm going to be sharing with you on Sunday as part of these misunderstandings. So thank you all again for attending class. Thank you to the moderators. We'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.